0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Before we turn it over to James, I want to introduce Len Riskin, again, who is a professor of dispute resolution at the University of Missouri in Columbia and has done a lot of writing and teaching on meditation in the law. And he's now going to talk for a little bit about what is going on in mindfulness and the legal profession. So thank you.
1: Thanks, Doug. Uh, So uh, since uh, 1999, I've been uh, uh, teaching uh, meditation to law students and lawyers and mediators and writing about it and trying to keep track of uh, of what's going on in uh, all across uh, the country and to some extent abroad in this realm, and I, I want to acknowledge that a lot of what I'm going to describe uh, has roots in the uh, Center for Contemplative Minds' uh, early projects, early 1998, 99, 2000 uh, retreats for students from uh, Yale and Columbia law schools and for for uh, lawyers, which uh, in which Charlie had the lead. Um, uh, not all of these flow from that, but but lots of these activities do, including a lot of mine. Um, so I started this uh, program called the Initiative on Mindfulness in Law and Dispute Resolution, partly as a vehicle for keeping track of what's going on. And every year, about three times, I send out an email list of forthcoming events in uh, mindfulness, law, and dispute resolution. So if you're interested, uh, there's a sign-up sheet out there. Um, why? Before I, I, I quickly tell you what's going on, I just want to hit a couple of points about why I think these things are happening and why uh, it might be important for the legal profession. Um, none of these ideas are new. Uh, they're things you've heard uh, a little bit about in the last, in the last couple of days. Uh, but the one main purpose for lawyers and law students and mediators to be involved is simply to feel better. Another is to perform better on basic tasks um, by being able to listen, by feeling more relaxed, by being able to concentrate. And then there um, is another kind of goal which has to do with improving the kinds of services uh, that that we offer. There was some talk here uh, a couple nights ago about what's wrong with legal education and what's wrong with the profession has been a... A steady theme here, um, and there are lots of uh, efforts to change things in law schools and in in the profession and in mediation. New ways to think about negotiation, about mediation, um, collaborative law, therapeutic jurisprudence, holistic law—all this stuff that with which many of you are familiar and many of you are involved. And the problem is, uh, is just this: we can teach. This, these new ways of thinking in law schools and in CLE programs. Uh, and a lot of people don't get, get it at all, but most people can get it in an academic setting. Uh, but when it comes to applying some of these ideas in practice, in the fire of practice, a lot of us uh, actually have trouble, and so we revert to our habits and uh, become, in a word, more adversarial. The idea, uh, the value of mindfulness is, uh, as you've all heard and everybody knows by now, it's that you can catch yourself. You can catch yourself uh, before you react based on habit uh, and be present enough to maybe do exactly the right thing uh, that's needed in that moment with these particular people rather than relying on either general principles or habits. So... Um, I see mindfulness in this profession as really foundational for the kinds of changes that a lot of people have been uh, trying to foster and that are happening to some extent. So that's the the background. And the various programs I'm going to, going to describe to you all have different purposes. Uh, they don't all have all of these goals, and uh, who knows what happens. I'll say a word at the end about what happens to the various individuals who who get into these programs. Um, I want to mention, so what I want to do is talk about what's going on in law schools, law firms, CLE, mediation, um, and in one court program that you probably don't know about in my home state. Um, in law schools, there are efforts to teach mindfulness meditation in some four-credit courses. Uh, I've been teaching a course called Understanding Conflict, a required course in a LLM and dispute resolution program, which has a lot of meditation, and have my faculty colleagues have approved a course on emotional intelligence, which is largely uh, going to be uh, meditation. At the University of Miami, Clark Freshman over here in introduces mindfulness meditation into his negotiation courses, and tries to measure the effect uh, on on how students negotiate. At Hastings, uh, Chris Knowlton, who is over here, uh, introduces uh, mindfulness into her negotiation and mediation courses, and into the similar courses offered by a bunch of her uh, colleagues. And there's similar things that are going on at a few other schools. I'm not going to be—I'm not going to mention everything that I know about, and I probably don't know about everything, although I probably know about almost everything uh, in this sphere because I spent a lot of time trying to find out. Um, There's a lot of non-credit efforts at law schools. I mentioned the three uh, big retreats for uh, Yale and Columbia Law School students. Um, At at least two law schools, there have been a series of mindfulness-based stress reduction programs. These are eight-week programs uh, developed at the University of Massachusetts by Jon Kabat-Zinn and his group. And, the uh, University of North Carolina has, Law School has a, had a series of these. At my school, at the University of Missouri, we've had three, and we're having another one next semester. Um, at Harvard Law School, there have been a bunch of things. The Office of Student Life recently sponsored uh, meditation training. Uh, the Program on Negotiation has sponsored three symposia on mindfulness in the last, uh, in, in the last few years, including a big symposium. Uh, that uh, Doug just mentioned. Um, there are uh, sitting groups, at least at, uh, at Berkeley, at uh, North Carolina, at Missouri, and maybe, maybe other places, just informal, once-a-week uh, gatherings. Uh, there are two new law school organizations that I think are significant. One uh, mine, which I mentioned, the other is uh, at Harvard Law School. It's called the Harvard Negotiation Insight Initiative, uh, part of the program on negotiation, its purpose is to study contemplative practices from uh, various wisdom traditions in order to see how they can improve uh, theory and practice of uh, negotiation, dispute resolution, uh, lawyering. Um, this program uh, has put on a number of uh, of conferences, including, I'll, I'll come back to that, I'll tell you that in a minute, hold on, I want to move to law firms. Um, this, the main uh, big stuff that happened beginning in 1998 and 99 was that Halen and a large Boston firm, uh, had two uh, eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, programs. Uh, the firm no longer sponsors these programs because of a change in uh, in management, but a lot of the lawyers are still meditating uh, in the firm regularly. Um In uh, Minneapolis, our friend uh, Bob Zeglovich, who is around here, spoke earlier, has been leading, has been teaching meditation in his firm, Leonard Street and Dynard. Uh, Another Boston firm, Nutter, McLennan & Fish, a large, uh, also a large firm, uh, has had a series of trainings in mindfulness offered by uh, Jeff Hargraves Held, who is of counsel with that firm. Um, There I know of numbers of other firms that have had one-shot presentations or workshops. Um, Now, continuing legal education. Uh, This uh, Mindfulness has appeared in various ways, through various portals, I guess you could say. One is um, under the rubric of stress reduction or emotional intelligence programs which have come through uh, bar associations and sometimes lawyer assistance committees. These are used. The ones I know about have been very short, maybe one shot. But I I think this is uh, an area that can develop. There have also been at uh, conferences uh, brief uh, workshops uh, at the ABA. I think Steve Kiva uh, organized the first one in about 1998, and... Jack Himmelstein and I were on that one. But since then, there have been lots and lots of workshops at, um, not lots, several workshops at ABA conferences and at ACR, Association for Conflict Resolution Conferences, um, and other dispute resolution conferences around the country, a little bit in Canada, a little bit in Europe, um... They're almost uh, normal now. People are not so surprised when they see uh, mindfulness on the program. Uh, the other uh, important development in uh, CLE, I think, has been in mediation training and a little bit in negotiation training, programs that have integrated uh, mindfulness into uh, multi-day trainings. And there have been uh, three of these at, uh, at Pepperdine uh, on, on, on mediation Um, and there's one, there was one at Harvard last summer. There's going to be, both those schools will have, uh, these programs again, although the focus will be on, uh, lawyering a little more than on mediation. Uh, but in the Harvard program this summer, uh, and there are brochures for Pepperdine and Harvard out there. There will be, uh, three workshops dealing with spirituality and, uh, dispute resolution and, uh, Norman Fisher and Jack Himmelstein will be teaching uh, one of those, and I'll be teaching another. Um, so in some way, and these, by the way, are almost the reverse of this kind of program. This is really a retreat with some elements of a workshop in it. These other ones are really workshops with some elements of retreats in them. Um, and we, we all know about Mary's uh, switching a little bit. Mary has a regular Dharma group, for lawyers, um, there are probably other things going on, as I say, that I don't know about. But that's a quick run through. One other thing I want to mention, you probably don't know about this: in St. Louis, Missouri, there is a a court a, a program in the criminal courts or connected to the criminal courts, in which a different form of meditation is used: TM, Transcendental Meditation, which is really not like this. It's a mantra-based Form of meditation, but it has some uh, of similar effects. Uh, under this program, seven criminal court judges are ordering a lot of most of the people on probation to take transcendental meditation, and they're having very wonderful uh, results in terms of uh, recidivism, reduction of recidivism. And two or three members of the Missouri Supreme Court are on the steering committee of this uh, local organization and the guy who's running it, who is connected with the Maharishi, uh, tells me he's teaching a lot of judges to do uh, transcendental Meditation in St. Louis. I don't know of a similar program in mindfulness. Um, but I don't know why I don't know why that couldn't happen. Anyway, in the beginning, I talked about various uh, purposes uh, for these programs. And they all they don't all have the same purposes. not everyone who starts such a program knows what their purposes are, and we never know what's going to happen when uh, people get into these programs, which I'm sure is true in any retreat there's Is this just for stress reduction or is it, is it to is it for liberation I don't think teachers or sponsors or promoters have any control over what happens to the people who uh, who come in so I've seen all kinds of of effects on uh, people I've worked with, and I'm very much of a junior uh, kind of a teacher. Uh, and uh, some have had quite dramatic uh, impact and on some, and on others, uh, no impact, whatever, and, and many more sort of an intermediate impact. So that's my quick uh, report. Uh, Doug, have I gone over my time already?
0: Thank you. I, I don't know. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. So um, there were a number of questions, but actually uh, there's not that much time, and because uh, I know at nine o'clock people are going to be um, meeting and being in uh, groups together, exploring the topics of interest to you. Uh, but wanted to start with um, two questions and see where it takes us. The first, the first I want to. Uh, share a few thoughts and then open it up and see if there's any other responses question is what is the relationship between compassion as expressed by the Buddha and love as expressed by Christ <laughs> and this is um, this is, it's a it's a very um, profound question and also uh, a question that um, I want to explore the, the deeper implications of and share with you something that I've gotten interested and involved in and welcome any input you have. Um, you know, the, the truth is the truth and it comes in many different packages. Um, love is love, compassion is compassion. In, in Buddhism, compassion is the heart that is open. In uh, in relationship to suffering, the quivering of the heart uh, that uh, that opens to suffering with strength and centeredness, uh, and that it is a divine abode because it evokes that quality of caring. That's a sublime state. But the basis of compassion is that sense of connection, interconnectedness. Um, what the question goes to, I think, even uh, more than the definitions of compassion and love is the importance of different expressions of the truth and of spiritual values uh, that can reach many different people. The Buddha didn't teach Buddhism. Christ didn't teach Christianity. Jack Kornfield, when he was leaving uh, Thailand and coming to, uh, to the States, asked his teacher, Ajahn Chah, do you have any advice if I begin to teach? And Ajahn Chah said, yeah, you might call it Christianity.
2: <laughs>
0: and when, you're, when you are embodying these values, that is the most uh, powerful transmission, what is, I think, going to be called for and called on us uh, in these next few years, now that the, the issue of moral values is on the table, is for us to really explore and define and clarify what are moral values. In Buddhism, those values are expressed in the five precepts. Not killing, stealing, uh, sexual, uh, uh, consci- being conscious around sexuality, around speech, and around uh, substances. Basically, a spirit of non harming. And those, if, imagine if, if our country and the world had that as a definition of moral values. Uh, and we are starting to work uh, with interfaith. Uh, developing an interfaith network where not just Buddhists but Christian and Jew and uh, Muslim and Hindu all starting to come together to clarify what just what moral values are and um, um, really go deeper into this this question one of the projects that I'm involved with that I want to share with you that can, perhaps be a catalyst for some interfaith um, deep discussions is, uh, right now, a conscientious objector project uh, that uh, (coughs) Spirit Rock is exploring, um, offering. And what we would like to do, what we intend to do, um, is to have young people start to explore their moral values, their values, clarifying values, and go through training where they are um, taking precepts, where they are looking for themselves, what really matters, and arriving at, if they do, for themselves, the understanding that non-harming is an integral part of their spiritual life, and develop a portfolio over time so that if and when there were a draft, that they have a kind of um, uh, record, and not just going through hoops, but internally have transformed uh, and clarified their values. And uh, The idea would be for there to be that kind of a program, not just at Spirit Rock, but at um, any Dharma center, and we're talking to other Dharma centers uh, around the country to offer that kind of a program. And also um, speaking now with, um, with uh, Jewish and Christian uh, organizations and churches, particularly in the Bay Area. And our vision is for there to be uh, that alternative provided for at any temple or... Church or mosque where young people could start, or ashram could start to explore that and have that as part of the understanding so that when, let me backtrack, so that as conscientious objectors they can contribute to the community as community service and that. That would be part of the program, giving back to um, giving back to the community and showing their patriotism as an alternative to military service. So anyway, I just wanted to put that out to you and, and um, uh, let you know we've been in touch with George Lakoff, who's a very brilliant, uh, languaging uh, communicator, and Marshall Rosenberg, who I just spoke to the other day, and. Uh, there, Marshall Rosenberg used to, who teaches nonviolent communication, used to uh, uh, train uh, and speak to conscientious objectors, and they're both quite interested in, in supporting something like that. And I think it's something for us all to think about these next years. You're the best, some of the best communicators around, and to help articulate and help to. Um, um, think through and support on whatever level you in the legal profession can uh, that kind of a conscientious, objective movement. So, that is part of an interfaith movement. I just wanted to see if there's any responses or any, uh, anything around this question of different of interfaith expression of values. Anything that comes up before we go to the next question?
3: once you're focusing on a religious-based morality, there's a whole issue that George Lakoff talks about, you know, that the standards are outside of ourselves, from some higher being, and that opens it up to a lot of the vulnerabilities around the fundamentalist religions. So, just...
0: I, so, I didn't quite get the... Well, that,
3: that it seems the idea of a lot of religions is that the mor- our sense of morality comes from whoever the supreme being is seen as, and that's different from a morality that's developed within ourselves. <coughs> and it sort of opens the door to sort of legitimizing fundamentalism and then the fight is, well, whose supreme being is the more moral? Mm-hmm. And that there needs to be more of a language around the secular morality. And, yeah. and I would hope George Lakoff is including that in his mm-hmm. thinking. Yeah,
0: absolutely.
3: Yeah.
0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah. So anyone who has a... A child between the ages of 12 and 26, this is uh, on people's minds and we just want to address that as, a, as something to, to think about and we're working on it here. Um, so here's, a, here's another um, question. How important is right livelihood? Assuming that as lawyers we do not directly kill anyone and we do not manufacture weapons how much more of an inquiry is it helpful to make about the nature of our work? Um, and uh, rather than anyone of us answering the question, just we can open it up to see what you think. What's your response to that question? What is the important, how important is right livelihood, particularly with? With regard to lawyers, to frame what you do in terms of right livelihood. Yeah, Tim?
2: And I get permits for large scale development all over California. And what I am doing is evolving the language and the way I talk to the clients about the values that they're bringing to the development. And um, it's not radical but it's it's actually profound at times. So what I'm trying to do is work with my clients to um, be really specific about their intention in in what they're building. and. Um, It doesn't always necessarily um, translate into what goes on the land, but I do feel that the right livelihood is is begun by raising the question and maybe the next time a project goes forward, there'll be something in it. Um, I recently got a major developer to joint venture with an African-American church to build affordable housing on a church parking lot, which was underutilized. Now, whether he, he took that to heart, and we'll do it again, I don't know, but um, I'm not particularly worried because we got a bunch of affordable housing that otherwise wouldn't have been created. Mm. And he got his 400-foot, 800-unit building. So, I mean, it, you know, I I, I think you, it, 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 my intention is, is critical, to live right, and my hope to use what I know to get others to see their intention, I think, is. Is 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 good enough? Thank
0: you. What does that word "right" li- that phrase "right livelihood" mean mean to you?
2: I, I wonder if there's some students or young lawyers yeah.
0: or or anyone who hasn't had a chance to speak in the group yet that might have some thoughts. Don't be shy.
1: There's some
3: My name's Abby. I think this question is probably the most often talked about question among my peers in law school. Um, and it's but it's really hard to speak to without feeling right and um, I think I think I came to mindfulness or realizing that I really needed mindfulness (laughs) in my life when um, I work mostly with communities that are grappling with the human rights and environmental effects of oil development, mostly on native land, sometimes not on native land, in the Philippines and Colombia and Burma. And six years ago, or five years ago, um, a friend and colleague of Martin's and mine and my boyfriend um, were, were... How do you even say this? Um, I w- we worked with a community in Colombia that's, that's fighting Occidental Petroleum, which is based in L.A., and our, my boyfriend, our friend, our colleague... Um, Terrence Freitas and two Native American women leaders um, from this country were visiting the community in 99 and were exiting the land then coveted by the oil company um, and were kidnapped and assassinated after an eight day, eight days of being held and in the aftermath of that um, it the murders served as a kind of a rallying cry among conservative members of the House to end the U.S. participation in the peace talks in Colombia and to go kind of rally around Plan Colombia, which has been a devastating military funding package that we've led there. Um, And it also, over the the ensuing months, led to um, an arrangement on that land that that let the oil drilling go forward, and there <laughs> it be, it was clear to me and to to several others after that that in dealing with the members of the House and dealing with um, the environment minister um, from Colombia and in dealing with the PR people at Occidental that that there wasn't um, there wasn't room for words or action that weren't coming from mindfulness so we did a lot of work to to come from that place and in that work I learned about the the precepts as Thich Nhat Han who's a huge inspiration to lots of us um, in how he and his community and the School of Youth, Youth for Social Service in Vietnam during the war um, dealt with it when their friends were assassinated or when their friends um, lost their lives to the peace work that they were doing uh, during the war. And the way that, that I understand Right Livelihood from his teachings is that that you don't do it if it leads to killing. And it means for a lot of students who are taking that seriously, it means you don't go to the firm that represents the oil companies. And you can't find one in the in the ones that for example interview at Bolt. And I not that I not that litigation is, you know, what I want to do. I I work for a small firm that Represents um, some of these communities in the Alien Tort Claims Act cases against the oil companies now, which are not ne- also not necessarily mindful environments. <laughs> um, but i it. It does, um, I think the line for me personally, probably because of uh, this, how real and high the stakes are, not just for our colleagues from the North who have been killed, but, but also for the people whose lives are destroyed by these companies and by our addiction to oil here. Um, but I th- I think for me the the line is drawn a little differently than than just if we're not manufacturing weapons and we're not holding the gun. Um, and I don't know how to talk about that here without being super moralistic. I please don't hear it that way because ev- I get it that everybody has a different place of drawing that line. I don't know how the hell I'm going to earn a living, but I have managed so far. I think it probably will entail not living in the Bay Area. It probably will entail co-housing with other like-minded people and families and sharing resources and making it work that way. That's a happy vision to me, not a sacrificing vision. Uh, And I'm not saying that I have figured it out, but it's, it's definitely on the table in all of the conversations I have with other students who are choosing not to do on-campus interviewing.
0: is uh are we going to do this tomorrow i'm not sure now about discussing the relationship between detachment and zealous representation one's client
2: yeah yeah all
0: right So we could just sit for a few minutes.
1: was given by James Barris at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 20th, 2004. It is an offering of the...
2: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.